Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Welcome to Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter, and to the second in our Grantham Institute series, in which we bring scientists and climate researchers into the studio to explore some of the innovative, groundbreaking research that will help us tackle the challenges of climate change. As well as my guests, who I'll introduce in a minute, we're joined in the studio today, but for the very first time, by Hector the dog, who is the official Planet Pod mascot. So if you hear any snuffles, whines, gurgling, snoring, I promise it's not me or the guests, it's actually Hector. And you'll get to see a picture of him because we're going to post it on social media. We started the series with an exploration of what we mean by net zero and how we might get there. And in the subsequent programmes, we were looking at things like transport, waste, agricultural industry and how we tackle those in our quest for the net zero world. The Grantham Institute Climate Change and Environment at Imperial College is home to some of the world's leading scientists, researchers and innovators whose combined expertise offer us inspiring visions of what a zero carbon future could be like. So it's incredibly exciting to have two more really skilled and interesting guests in the studio with us today. And I'm very keen to talk to them about some of the issues around energy. So I'm delighted to welcome my guest, Dr. Geoffrey Hardy, who's a senior research fellow who researches energy market transformation innovative energy business models and the role of consumers and citizens in future energy systems. Gosh, that's a mouthful. And he also leads the UK Energy Revolution Research Consortium, and I'm going to ask them both to tell us what that's about. And he's joined by Dr. Madeline Morris, who's a research associate at Grantham, and she's been working in the Energy Revolution Research Consortium as well, but particularly on policy, regulation and innovation frameworks to support smart local energy systems. So quite a lot to take on board, but they are both very skilled and it's wonderful to have them here. So Madeline and Jeff, thanks you for coming. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. So I think perhaps we should start by talking about what this Energy Research Consortium is. I mean, it's a mouthful, but it sounds as if it might be doing something very exciting and pretty, I don't know, different and special at, um, at Imperial. So can you just kick off by telling us what you do and, and what you're hoping to get out of it? Yes, so very, very happy to. Um, one thing just to clear up, uh, we don't actually lead the whole consortium. Um, that's my colleague, Professor Stephen MacArthur up in Strathclyde University, but we're lucky enough to lead the bit that looks into policy and regulation for future smart local energy systems. Okay, we wouldn't want to cut him out of the picture because he's obviously very important. <laughs> uh, and he's a very nice man as well. Um, so uh, as a consortium, we're, we're lucky enough um, to be looking at the future of local energy. Um, and we're in the middle of a very large government program through the Industrial Strategy Challenge Fund, which looks um, at smart local energy systems. It's called Prospering from the Energy Revolution, which gives a hint about what it all means. Um, so what that means is that there's about 100 million pounds of public money gone into funding some very large local energy system demonstrators. So these are demonstrators in different places. So there's one up on the island of Orkney and two in Oxfordshire. And what they're actually looking at is what is a local net zero smart local energy system and what does it mean in different places? And that's the key thing because when you're thinking about local energy, um, it's different. People are different, demographics are different, geography is different, resources are different. Um, and that's, I think, the most exciting thing when you're working in local energy 
um, is it's not one size fits all. It's this wonderful kind of smorgasbord of different approaches, different technologies, um, different things that work in different places. Um, so as a consortium, we're looking across all sorts of things. So we have uh, a program of research that's supporting these demonstrators thinking about kind of like how, how does a smart system work? So how does like technology meet artificial intelligence, for example? Um, how do businesses transform to be these kind of like local net zero energy businesses of the future? And how does the money flow in those? The bit we're looking at is policy and regulation. So what do they need to enable that, um, enable them to deliver their benefits? Uh, we have a whole bit on users. So the people, the businesses, all of those st relevant stakeholders and actors that come together to form these smart local energy systems. And then we have a whole bit of work on scale up. So how do you either scale up or scale out? So replicate in different places some of these aspects of smart local energy systems. Um, so we have something like about 60-ish researchers across 22 different universities um, all looking into this. So it's a really great community for meeting new researchers, kind of like having a lot of new interdisciplinary research ideas. Um, and it, it, it's, it's, it's been a really good start to the consortium. We've been going since December last year. My goodness, we've been going almost a year. Um, <laughs> That's fantastic. £100 million doesn't sound like very much to me. In so, terms of research, I mean, I know for one institution, that's probably quite a lot of money, but spread across such a wide number of projects. I mean, even if it's just funding those three projects, that's still not a huge amount of research because presumably this is fairly untested ground, is it, the stuff that we're looking at here? Yes, that's right. But it, the, the £100 million for, say, the demonstrators, that's just the public money part. Those demonstrators okay. had to bring between two and three times that much in private money as well. Okay. So these and when you are, say demonstrators, you kind of mean pilot projects effectively, do you? Or Yeah. So yeah. we're seeing if you if the idea works in on the ground and therefore we can then roll that out and test that in other areas and take the learning from that particular idea, yeah? Exactly. These demonstrators, the, the whole purpose of them is after they've been running for three years, they should be commercial and they should be replicable elsewhere. So all of those lessons need to be learned incredibly quickly. So it's, it's a very fast-moving and ambitious programme. And this is probably a bit of a dumb question, but what is smart energy? I mean, what's a smart energy system? Because some of us might not. I mean, know what smart motorways are. I do personally, having been on a three-hour course for going too fast on one. Um, I'm now an expert <laughs> on smart motorways. But what is smart? I mean, is that just a shorthand for technologies being involved in this process? Or? Um, well, you shouldn't be so hard on yourself for not knowing exactly what it means because, in fact, no one in the industry knows. It's <laughs> kind of one of these catch-all terms that at the moment means everything and nothing at the same time. And one of the first pieces of work that we did in the consortium is have a look in the literature about how people are conceptualising smart local energy systems. And to do that, we had to break it down first into what people think of us as energy system and then a local energy system and then adding the smart on top of it. So there's no consensus. There okay. are some... Um, there's some ideas that people have that are, are common across the whole thing. So um, for it to be local, you know, there's some sort of geographical boundary around it. The concept of using local resources to benefit um, local residents and people around it. And then smart, that means so many different things to different people. It can range from being just better than the current system, whether that's about being um, cheaper or more efficient or actually providing you with just a better service. Um, for some people, it might mean automation and data. 
So we're still, even as a consortium, figuring out what that means. Um, but all of it's quite exciting. Yeah, it sounds really exciting. And I, I just wanted to explore this idea of the local energy system, because, I mean, we all know that our energy comes from, well, a lot of us perhaps haven't thought about it, but we know our energy comes through the grid, and we know that there are big providers putting into that grid. But actually, there's a lot more providers in the grid now, aren't there? There's lots of kind of micro-energy producers and you know, lots of the renewable companies are buying in energy from very small providers. Could be, you know, somebody with a couple of wind turbines in their field sort of thing. So how does that mesh into a local system? Are you, are you, how do you have a vision in your mind that perhaps me in my local town, we'd have a small energy producing system, whether it's, you know, wind or solar or something, and we would then be drawing on that just for that town's needs? Or is that too, is that too sort of micro thinking? Well, there's a couple of things going on. So energy is going to become more local. If we're going to hit um, a zero carbon target by 2050, a lot of the modelling, say, from National Grid or from the Committee on Climate Change, it sort of shows that you go from about 30% of energy resources being local to 50 or 60%. So that's almost a doubling um, of what or how local energy is going to be um, manifest. But alongside that, there's loads more action going on locally because net zero also tends to mean that um, services like mobility, so getting around, Mm -hmm. um, is going to increasingly move away from fossil fuels towards potentially electricity or other fuels like hydrogen, which is zero carbon. But also heating is going to transform as well. And a lot of the thinking is that we're going to have to replace or a number of gas boilers in place, maybe 20 million plus, um, will probably have to be replaced with something else along the way. Now, all of that congregates locally. So that means that if you're going to move transport from fossil fuel to electricity, you might move heating from fossil fuel to electricity, and you might have a lot more local renewable resources for energy. Um, That's where a smart local energy system really kicks off because you've then got okay, how do we balance out the available energy we have locally with all of these new users of that energy? Um, And what does that, how do we do that in an efficient, cost-effective way where the benefits stay locally? That's one of the big things about smart local energy is benefits should stay local as well. When you mean, say benefits, what do you mean? Like financial benefits, so community-owned, community, you know, that any surplus comes back into the community pot or... So it can be, this is the really exciting thing and also the slightly um, different thing about local energy is those benefits might be purely financial. So it might be kind of like keep the kind of like um, the money in the local economy, but it might be wider than that. It might be health benefits, you know, cleaner air means kind of like less hospital visits. It might be um, wider social benefits such as warmer homes mean um, better health outcomes, better social outcomes. But it might be other community benefits, you know, so kind of like reinvest this money into local amenities and so forth. So it's there's all sorts of things that different communities and different places want from this smart local energy system of the future. I would add that in terms of keeping the benefits locally, yes, where that's appropriate, but we're very aware also that this can't be at the expense of, say, the town next door. Mm. So this needs to, it needs to be we keep the benefits and that the communities and local areas do prosper, but it, that can't be at the expense of people up or down the rest of the country. 
And so, as you say, these demonstrator projects are, de are doing something that's not been seen before. And so we don't really know the best way to do it. Um, and I think that the consortium's job is less about sort of proving that local is the best way to go. Um, we've, this has come about because it is going locally. That seems to be something that's quite inevitable at the moment, and we're already on the road to that. These demonstrator projects are about making sure that we deal with that appropriately and in the best way possible. I can just... Hundreds of questions have just popped into my head as a result of what you've said. I mean, <clears throat> there's that whole thing about how communities, you know, sometimes you get that mass community thing, sort of psyche, don't you, where they say, well, actually, I don't want, you know, a power station, a, a wind turbine, a solar park on my doorstep. And then they've got those other communities which will be much more embracing of that, so they would be forging ahead. But you're going to have to transform the whole system, aren't you? Because if we're... If we're saying that local energy should be provided and used and managed locally, it's going to reflect the incredible diversity of the of the communities that we have across the UK. Big new urban conurbations, fine, because you can build all that into the infrastructure. What about small, you know, rural isolated areas where obviously your transport needs are going to be much higher because you've got no local public transport infrastructure? And what about those existing towns where there's absolutely no space for anything? And the minute you suggest building anything in the kind of surrounding semi-green or brown belt, there's a huge outcry from the existing population. I mean, this is just a transformation of how people have got to think about the way that they live and how they live, isn't it? Yes. Um, <laughs> but I mean, it's no small order, is it? This is not something simple. We're not just talking about rolling out a different bit of the national grid here, are we? And that's the revolution part of our name. We do understand that we're really going further than just transforming. It's completely revolutionising how we how we look at energy. But with that revolution comes the chance to really make people's lives better. All the benefits that Jeff was talking about earlier um, that come with this, maybe things that people don't usually associate with energy. As consumers, um, you and I using energy, usually as much as we think about it is how much it's costing us and um, are we getting enough? Is it there when we need it? But this transformation this revolution gives a chance to make energy much more than that there was a nearly um i was just going to say there's a really nice bit of research from uk energy research center so another research consortium and it was on public values and future energy and that the reason why i like this bit of research it was, it was a wonderfully well done bit of research lots of surveying people focus groups all of that kind of thing but what it came up with some really clear messages so it it says that um, the public recognise that they're going to have to probably pay for this net zero journey, but they want something from the other side of that. And they were able to impart some very clear values on what they want out of it. And there were very, very strong things like equitable, just, fair, um, environmentally compatible. But the one that I really liked was better. So if they're paying for Define it, better. Exactly. So it, and it's, but I think it's just a wonderful thing to put into any kind of social contract. Yeah. You know, it's like, all right, we, we, do, we do need some kind of like public support to pay for this, um, but we promise it's going to be better. Now we just have to work out what better means. In, and that's where it gets into local energy because better means different things in different places. Yeah. And that's where it gets really exciting, I think. I tell you what's really interesting about all these conversations we're having, and, and I just feel that I'm in such a privileged position because, you know, we have these conversations on the pod and every time I learn something new and different, but they all intermesh and overlap. So the conversation we're having about 
energy. We're actually talking about a revolution. We're talking about a revolution in how we how we work, how we live our lives, how we interact with one another, the responsibilities we take as communities. And it's not that far away from the conversation we had with XR recently, which is about a revolution in how we manage our political systems. So all of these things are beginning to interlock. Do you get that sense as scientists and researchers that you're on the brink of actually enormous transformational change in society, not just in the kind of pure mechanics of producing energy? That's a tough question. I know. Sorry, I just sprung that on you on a Tuesday morning. Yeah, well, I, I think we are. Um, but it's again th- this this idea that it's it's going to be this uniform transition or transformation is um, is probably not is probably not going to pass quite like that. But there is um, so this journey to net zero is going to be transformative. But for let's say um, you know families and and businesses, it might not feel that way but there will be there could be some incredibly transformative things in the background so let me just really unpack that because that means nothing um so let's just say um we talk briefly about what a smart local energy system means and then decided that it doesn't strictly mean anything so it's going to be very (laughs) specific to a place but if you if you want to kind of really drive out the carbon in a in a particular place um then you're going to have whatever local energy resources are available there. Um, they have to be zero carbon. Then you also have the kind of like the infrastructure. So places are different, whether it's a rural economy, a city center, a market town, whatever it might be. It's going to have different needs, different desires, different values. But the the transformative element will be how they all combine. So yes, lifestyles will feel a bit different and they could feel quite radically different so you know in 2050 if we fast forward that 30 years you know you will unlikely be heating your home with gas if you currently are you will most definitely not be driving a fossil fuel vehicle because they're banned from 2040 Um, and the chances are that your the way in which you're using electricity will be a little bit different because Renewable resources, you know, tend to be around when the wind's blowing, the sun's shining, the waves are flapping, whatever the <laughs> correct word is. Crashing. I think yeah, waves crashing. crashing. That's good. <laughs> yeah, I like crashing is probably better. Um, which means it does matter quite a lot when you use energy. Um, but, you know, I don't think the nation is going to turn into, um, you know, homeowners, home occupiers, you know, watching kind of like prices kind of like change like jeff does yeah like i do (laughs) and like some energy companies provide that service don't they some of these kind of renewable energy companies particularly provide that service where you can watch the price every 15 or 20 minutes Mm, almost can't you and 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 change your usage but we won't do that i mean we'll all want to put the kettle on in the in the advert break of you know our favorite tv program yeah i would say strictly but i don't know if it's on bbc or itv so i can't (laughs) say that having not watched strictly but you know what i mean so there'll be those demands and surges won't there yeah and it's 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 you know, people aren't energy geeks like me, and they shouldn't be. So what it actually... Well, maybe they need to be. Maybe we need to be a bit more geeky to really understand the world that we're living in. I mean, we wouldn't... We've become slight technology geeks, haven't we? Because technology has taken over our lives so much. I mean, some people are really... Who possibly wouldn't expect to are really kind of 
understand the, the, the minutiae of the, of the technology revolution and the smartphones and the, all of the things that go with that. So maybe there's, it's incumbent on us to be a bit more energy geeky. Yeah, um. <laughs> I, I'm, a, I'm not convinced by this. Well, I think this will be different for different people. I think some okay. people will really want to. Um, some people like Jeff who have solar panels on their roofs and a battery in their house and that, that will really excite them. For other people, and I might put myself in this category, for me that smart bit probably means that I have to think less about it but actually still, still reap the benefits. Okay. So it's, it's really tricky to be able to, to design a system that can do that, that understands that not users are not all the same. Um, and I think it's quite well accepted that the energy sector is a little bit behind in understanding mm. users and how many different types of users mm. and um, segmenting it. I mean, how many different users is it that Amazon segment into it? Something like tens of thousands. 150,000. 150,000. And then the energy sector, six. <laughs> six. <coughs> six. So so that is, that is going to be part of the transformation is mm. better understanding what people actually want from their energy systems when and um, how that varies across from person to person, not just place to place, but individual person to person. So we're really moving from that kind of blanket, one-size-fits-all sort of approach to a much more micro-localised managed system. Now, I can hear the cynics listening to the programme saying, oh, yeah, well, this is OK, but we all know renewables won't meet our needs. You just said it yourself, the sun shines, the wind blows, but it doesn't do that all the time. There are big challenges here, aren't there, about what kind of energy we produce, how we produce it, how we store it you know, and the implications of all of that. So it isn't just us changing our user pattern to fit that. It's also need for new forms of energy production, isn't it? Or more reliable forms of energy production. Is that part of the kind of work that you're doing? Yes, I think definitely. And one of the buzzwords that is kicked around at the moment is flexible, a flexible energy system that sometimes goes hand in hand with smart, sometimes means different things. But it means a, a more responsive energy system that can cope with intermittency in renewables and does have storage that can play a much bigger part in that. So it's a system that looks very different from what we have now, where we just where we mostly have very large fossil fuel power stations that are essentially just on all the time, maybe turn up or down a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but we need to. So how are we going to meet that challenge? Because I mean, if we're not going to have fossil fuel, how are we going to plug that gap? Is that just better storage of the abundant free energy that we know we can get from from the sun and the wind when it's shining, when it's blowing? Or is that saying we've got to have alternative new forms of energy or cleaner forms of energy? And I know that you have a background in nuclear, don't you, Jeff, a little bit. And, mm. and you know, lots of environmentalists feel very uncomfortable about nuclear because of the implications of nuclear um, and the storage issues and the half-life and all of those sorts of things. So, so is nuclear part of this mix or are we actually looking at alternative new forms of energy we might not even have discovered yet? So there's, um, I think there's some some very big distinctions from where we were in the past with our thinking about how we satisfy, let's say, our electricity needs and where we're going to be in the future. So in the past, exactly as uh, Madeline described, you know, we were quite reliant. Let's say National Grid will be able to pick up the phone to maybe 50 different assets, big power stations and that sort of thing around the system and say, I need you to turn up or down. Um, And that was how you manage the system. I think if you fast forward to a smart local energy system of the future, um, you're the, whoever's operating that system, and it might be a mix of national and local operators, um, 
they will be putting out a signal to the market and millions of devices connected to that system um, will be responding um, and they won't know until later what actually did what okay as long as the result is right and that is what a smart system is it's kind of like it's it's a system in which there are a whole host of different things connected to electric vehicles batteries in homes solar panels local wind farms whatever it might be Um, and they're all known to the system and they're all they're all able to be respond to signals we are going to need more aren't we we're going to need more producers of energy so we're going to need more sources of, of raw energy coming into the system aren't we so is that, is that i mean is your part of your visioning of the future that we're just going to have lots more wind farms or lots more solar parks or you know are we looking at other sources of of energy that we haven't might might yet not have discovered I, I mean, think is there a role for for wave for example in here or tidal which doesn't seem to make very much progress in the uk at all i think one of the important things to remember about for for generation is making sure that it's where it's needed so we have some areas of the country where they generate too much renewable electricity from cornwall to the orkney islands they are both in the same situation where they've actually got um so much local resource but they're constrained there's like a bottleneck on the on the grid and they can't actually export that electricity anywhere so Part of the beauty, I think, of moving to a local, a more local system is that you can understand much better the local needs and the local resources. So it's giving us a chance to understand where there's the option for more solar or more wind and where there's the need for it. There's not really any point in building wind farms no, but, okay. but where there's nobody mm. there or nobody to use it. The problem with wind farms is they tend to be in open areas on high points so peaks and you know that's why there's a lot in Cornwall there's a lot of land isn't there but if you live in you know in London or if you live in kind of you know in and around Birmingham for example there's not a lot of scope for putting up wind turbines. Yes so I think there's a so there's a very important what is smart the answer to question here and I think if we if we take the fact that we're likely to need, let's say, more electricity in the future, if we move some of the transport and some of the heating across to electricity, that definitely means you need more electricity generation. The question to which smart is the answer to is how big do I need to make that electricity system? Um, and what smart enables you to do is to make it as small as you need um, okay. in order to satisfy all of that new demand um, with um, all of those caveats about kind of like wind blowing, sun shining, waves um, crashing, I think we agreed, um, you know, and tides coming in and out, whatever it might be. Um, those are all, you know, part of the equation, if you like, about kind of like, well, what do I need to be sure that, um, and the, the really important part in that is in that future smart electricity system, the demand side, so our behavior, business behavior, um, other things becomes a, a completely integral part of that. So not only is, you know, um, the production of electricity varying, you know, because of the wind, because of the sun, but also the demand can vary to follow it. And that's what a smart system is, where both the demand and the supply side are working in unison, okay. as opposed to what we have at the moment, which is a very demand-led system, whereby, you know, someone is turning up and down a power station because people are turning on their kettles at half time so so how do we educate or 
incentivize changes in behavior because that's actually what you're talking about it seems to me we've got a regulatory policy framework that we've got to tackle which is i largely i should imagine government-led um, hopefully informed by the evidence that you're producing through these demonstrated projects and through the science how do we change behaviors how do we you know i can see local individual communities changing behaviors because you can see a direct benefit you know i'm, I'm a, a reasonable sized town and i can see the health benefits the financial benefits the community benefits how am i going to persuade business to change behaviors how are we going to persuade larger centers where we've got much more diverse communities and populations to change behavior because we do need behavioral changes as well as production energy management changes don't we yes and i think there's 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 a few elements that come into play here um, so let's say um, if you know as a government, as a country, that certain technologies cannot proceed into the future because of the carbon content or whatever it might be. So let's say internal combustion engines, uh, gas boilers, that kind of thing. Then you have a fairly standard regulatory route to just mandate that, you know, a heating, um, uh, a heating application in a home has to have a certain you know, carbon threshold. Yeah, but we're not getting that response from, from, from the big fossil fuel producers, are we? What we're getting is a lot of kind of talk and quite a lot of greenwashing, but we're not, you know, getting that real commitment to change because it's still in their interest to, to go on, you know, digging up fossil fuels, fracking, drilling for oil. All of those things are still happening. And, you know, we had uh, someone from Shell on the pod recently and they said, well, we won't make 2050. It's more like 2070 for net zero. So there's no real commitment from those big producers and if there's no commitment from them what commitment would there be from the businesses who say well I don't need to worry about this because the oil companies will go on producing oil and there'll always be oil fired and gas fired power stations I don't have to worry about it well I think that's where it comes in so it's um if if we have well we do have a net zero target but what we don't have is the um the suite of policies and regulations that are commensurate with that at the moment we have some of them so you know things like phasing out an internal combustion engine by 2040 um, you know that's that's fairly firm there's a question about whether or not you could do that sooner um, mm. it doesn't seem to be a particular reason why not because you go in kind of like you know cars of a certain life um, so you could just like work out in you know one I guess lifetime people or two say lifetimes. the infrastructure that's always the argument against isn't it you know EVs we haven't got any proper infrastructure charging system takes too long all of those usually there are lots of reasons that people come up with why we can't do it I mean I think they're solvable. They're all solvable problems, aren't they? They are, and they're, <laughs> they're, um, they're, they're, they're the nightmare of the policymaker because they're integrated problems as well. So they're yeah. interdependent. So it's, you know, if I'm going to phase out this, then I need to have that in place. But if I have something that's going to, say, um, promote electric vehicles, then I also need to think about what I'm going to do on electricity generation to make yeah. sure there's enough of that. I also need to bring in kind of like um, the ability to kind of forget that demand side to get smart charging so people charge at the right times for the good of the system. You know, I also then need to think about heating. You know, how am I going to do that? What this could result in, and this is what I, I think we're, we're both trying to, to hint at here, is um, it could result in a load of complexity and cost being heaped on consumers, on citizens. You know, it's kind of like, you know, if, if the government is basically saying you need to change your gas boiler and your car and you need to, let's say, insulate your house for energy efficiency purposes. That's... Well, I can see citizens because you can incentivize citizens as individuals. But how do we change culture with business? Because I don't see that transition. I mean, even at the moment, if you're, you know, if you're on a green tariff as a business and you're reporting your carbon because you think that's an important thing to do, 
there's no real incentive for you because you just go on the you know the standard tariff and you haven't you can't show how much difference you're making because you know you just re- report against a set of regulation that evens everything else out so so there's no real incentive for for business in this unless we get a financial incentive or do we have to have carrot and stick do we have to have a financial incentive and you know a regulatory policy you know disincentive if you like you know pe- penalize people for saying you're not doing you're not being a green enough business because that's going to make you know any government unpopular I mean, this is unpopular stuff, isn't it? It's important stuff, but it might be unpopular. So how do we get that shift, do you think? Well, yeah, I mean, net zero is transformative. You know, we keep coming back to this as a theme. um, And therefore, it needs needs both. It needs um, incentives and it needs sticks. Um, So it will need decisions that start to um, preclude certain technologies happening you know, being installed in homes or businesses, but it also needs to have the other side of that. So one of the other bits of my work, um, which will relate to the Energy Revolution Research Research Consortium, but it's another one of my interests, is um, if you want citizens, if you want businesses to be doing the right thing, um, but you're making it more complicated, do you need to allow um, new energy businesses to allow them to take that complexity away from consumers, because as we already talked about, there's about 2% geeks, 98% people who do not really care about this stuff. Mm. Um, so if, you, if you're asking a business to say, take on kind of like complexity risks, so managing that supply and demand side on behalf of consumers, and maybe take on financial risks, like installing new technologies in homes, um, helping people insulate their homes better, all of that kind of thing. So they're taking on a long-term financial risk. Then they're going to need a couple of things. One is they're going to need that financial incentive to do that, so the risk-reward um, side of things. But the second one is it comes back to the smart. They're going to need the data. You yeah. know, how, do, how does a business know what the right decision for you is um, if they don't know you at all? So it's back to the kind of like the Amazon versus big six mm. kind of archetypes of consumers at the moment. You do need a much more user-centric approach to designing the right sort of kind of like net zero proposition, tariff, um, lifestyle, whatever it might be, um, with consumers. Can you see a future where we have just sources of energy we haven't even discovered yet, Addy? I mean, is there a world out there with exciting innovation that we haven't quite encountered? Perhaps not types of energy. I mean, the renewables that we're using now, they're not, they're not new. I mean, solar and wind have been powering civilizations for... Forever. Time. Yeah, exactly. I think the innovation comes in how we use it and how we utilise it. I think going back to maybe the policymaking um, and how we, how we do that, part of our work and our team at... Um, Energy Revolution Research Consortium is working directly with policymakers, and I'm quite I'm quite new to this policy um, world. Um, so until a year or so ago, I was a chemist, and um, so I've only been in this position for about six months. And I think what I've been actually quite impressed and su- surprised, but impressed about is the policymakers that we do speak to. They know they know that they, that they need to change policy. They do know. And they're really, really passionate about doing this. They don't know how to do it. Nobody knows yet because we don't know what the future energy systems are going to look like. So it's really, really difficult to be able to 
um, set policies and regulations that will put us on the, on the right path, but not lead us away from ones that we can't see yet. So part of what we're doing is taking all the evidence that we can from these big demonstrator projects that we mentioned and taking them taking that evidence to the policymakers and saying, look, this is what they're struggling with now in the environment that is that we have. This is what they need to do. How do we how do we how do we come up with policies and, and regulate for that that helps them but doesn't kind of stop stop innovation in other areas? And again, they they do know this and we're I think everybody I think is, is really working really hard to figure out what that looks like, but it is not an easy task. And are we going fast enough? Because some people would say that 2050 is not soon enough for net zero and we should be, you know, well, XR, for example, say it should be 2025, which is possibly unrealistic. But should we be aiming for something a bit sooner? And and is there that point that once you start innovating, you, the, the pace increases quite quickly, doesn't it? You know, and the revolution happens very quickly. So so should we be trying to pitch for 2030 or what do you think? I think we should be going as fast as we can. Yeah. I mean, if that brings us to closer than 2050, that's that would be brilliant. Um, in terms of moving towards sort of a smart, smart and potentially local energy system, there's so many other benefits that come with it that help everybody. So why would we not be getting there as soon as possible? Why do, why would we not want more prosperous, healthy, happy, happy people? And I suppose the point about a revolution is it's got to be partly top down, which is the yep. policy and the innovation and the science and the evidence and bottom up. So that's about engaging people. So as citizens and communities, we need to start demanding that this happens for us and in our community and, you know, and how we can actually make those changes happen because we're demanding it at local level. So you've got to get that push from below as well, haven't you? Yes. And I, I think that comes back to that, that wonderful bit of research from UK Energy Research Centre on public values. Um, and if you want to have that social contract that says um, government says we need to have net zero and the public says, yes, we're prepared to pay for that. But here's our demands, yeah. if you like, here's our side of that social contract. Um, then that is a br- it's a wonderful way to kind of like get that um, get that place specific kind of location specific people specific um, kind of like way of doing um, net zero um, in different places. I think that's that's where we need to be. It's like other other countries, other places um, have used kind of like all sorts of means of kind of like bringing that sort of thinking together. So citizen assemblies, citizen juries, you know, helping make those kind of decisions um, in a in a in a place. Um, and that I think that's going to be one of the critical things that we haven't yet fully explored. It's on the cards. Mm. but we haven't really kind of manifested it there's another there's another mm. question in that it, which is if energy is very place specific you know so kind of like one kind of like um, village has a different energy system to another village mm. do you need to relinquish some of the kind of like the very tightly clenched national kind of like regulatory and policy um kind of controls we have and devolve some of that down to a place so you can have these different systems these different outcomes as long as they all work together and kind of some of the parts kind of works for a national whole um and i think that's a very open question at the moment there's some really good work done by 
Exeter University by Catherine Mitchell and her team on future models of governing the energy system without asking exactly those important questions. That's the real revolution, isn't it? Because that's actually about taking away that national control and empowering local communities and local citizens to, to, to you know, make those changes. And that, I think, is the bit that's really exciting. So, you know, you've, you've set out a kind of revolutionary framework, for this, which is given that you're both reasonably mild-mannered scientists, it's quite exciting. I had no idea that we had this revolution on our doorstep. Um, and I think that's a very um, positive vision. And there's so much around this kind of climate change debate and net zero and where we are. And there's a lot of anxiety and unhappiness in this discussion at the moment, both, you know, nationally and globally. It's, it's, it's such a change to talk about something that has such a potentially positive future for us and paint such a positive future for us as citizens mm. and as consumers so thank you so much for setting out this quiet revolution <laughs> and for doing the work that you do and and for making that all so kind of clear and accessible and easy so um, madeline and jeff thank you for being on planet pod it's been great to talk to you thank you for having us thank you very much planet pod is brought to you by akil management my thanks to our producer jim haywood and our researcher beth palmer and to you, our listeners, without you, we'd be very lonely. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at planet underscore pod or visit our website. Please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you with ideas for future programmes. Thanks for listening. <laughs>